our scripture that can be found on the inside of your bulletin. This is Acts 20, 17 through 32. We continue to uh, take a little break from the Gospel of Luke that we've been going through uh, to look at the, uh, the issue of elders and church leadership and as we move into particularizing uh, what that actually means. So we're looking at a special passage in Acts concerning uh, eldership. This is Paul speaking. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have uh, gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among the saints. The word of the Lord. Well, it was 9.20 p.m. on Friday when the attacks began. They started at the Stade de France, a stadium where there was a friendly between France and Germany outside of the stadium, where several attackers detonated their suicide vests. The people in the stadium heard the explosions but didn't know what was going on. The president was evacuated The match continued. Just a few minutes later, gunmen opened fire at Le Carillion, a restaurant up the street. People dropped to the ground. We put a table over our heads to protect us. We heard the sounds of guns. It was endless. We thought initially it was fireworks. Continued at a restaurant across the street, Le Petit Cambodge, where 14 were killed and moved on to other restaurants, one called Italy in the heart of the Maria's district of Paris, La Casa Nostra, and Café Bonbier, where Muslim uh, Islam extremists came in and started firing. They continued ten minutes later at another restaurant, and then another as they shot and detonated their vests, culminating with an attack on a concert hall where there was an American band playing. 
It started where two black-dressed men holding automatic weapons stepped in and began firing indiscriminately. They took hostages. People feared. There was mass panic. There was running everywhere. Over 90 were killed alone in that venue until the police got to them. When all told and the numbers were added up, there were 129 who were killed that night. Over 352 hurt in this horrible, senseless tragedy in Paris. The group ISIS has taken responsibility. By the way, I'm calling an audible on our adult education. We were supposed to uh, look, continue looking at uh, church government, but I'm actually going to, we're going to be doing a session on Islam and taking a look at militant Islam in particular and examining what is behind these attacks, uh, these folks who are claiming to do this in the name of Allah. So that's going to be a very interesting class if you're interested in sticking around for that. The point I'm trying to make here is these people were defenseless. They were sitting ducks out on the streets and in the cafes and in the stadiums having a good time. They were like sheep being mowed down by these attackers. Paul speaks of the church in this way in this passage. He says that an attack is coming. Fierce wolves will come up from around and within the flock who will not spare it. The church, in many ways, is defenseless. It's amazing, in some ways, that the church has survived. A institution that follows the Scriptures and the example of a man who laid down his life on a cross and who says to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And yet the church is stronger than it's ever been. That within the supernatural life of the church, Jesus, who set it up, says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as Paul sends this warning to these Ephesians, he also provides a solution. That I have given you faithful leaders, these elders that I have appointed through God's grace, that are to stand in the gap in between the wolves and the flock, And that Paul, as he has given his life, that they might have life. That you also must give your life. That the flock would have life. You see, the message that Paul is giving to these Ephesian elders is that to lead others to life, you must be willing to give your life away. Jesus did it. Paul did it. It is the call of the elders to do it. And ultimately is the call of each one of us. To stand in the way of the wolf that the flock might be spared. And so I think this message is very timely for a church as we are on the eve of particularization and in the shadow of this tragedy. For there is danger that lurks around the church. And yet the supernatural church will prevail. And its commission of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth will be accomplished. So what is the message What are the points that I want to go over? A a successful church is founded on three points. Number one, love. Loving kindness. Loving kindness gives us a pattern for ministry. Paul shows this. Our second point is faithfulness. Paul gives a charge for ministry after showing his pattern for ministry of love, faithfulness. 
a charge to the elders. And finally, watchfulness. A picture for the elders, what they must do to protect against the flock. Let's take a look at these three points. Number one, love, a pattern for ministry, Paul's life. We see in verse 17, Paul uh, is in Miletus, which is about 30 miles away from Ephesus, and he calls the elders of the church at Ephesus to come to him. About 30 miles away, Paul is finishing up his third missionary journey. Remember, Paul has been commissioned by the church in Jerusalem to go to spread the gospel. And he has done so. And one of the places that he has done so is in Ephesus. In fact, Paul spent three years in Ephesus helping to preach the gospel and when folks came to faith, helping to build this church. It was a strategic base for him. In fact, he would, uh, just about every day, he rented the lecture hall of Tyrannus and he would preach the gospel. And it was because of his ministry in Ephesus that Jews and Gentiles from around the province of Asia heard the gospel. And a church was formed. And Paul, as an apostle, appointed elders. And now Paul is going back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has told him that persecution and death and suffering await him. And so as he travels by at this and docks into port here at Miletus, he sends for these elders. He will not see them again. And so this is his chance to share the most important things on his heart to these men. And so he leads as they come to him with his example. Verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Paul begins by appealing to his life. Look at the example that I've set. That I came and I lived among you the whole time. Paul was not in some sort of ivory tower, but rather he lived among the people, sharing his life with them, working alongside them. They saw his example, not just on Sunday when he preached the gospel, but as he fellowshiped and gave his life away to them day by day. You saw, you know how I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul understood that he was not building an empire or a corporation, but he was serving the Lord. This was a charge that had been given to him. He had come for the purpose, not of gaining personal popularity, but rather personal devotion. And so he did, serving the Lord day by day with humility, not lording it over people, to be sure leading them, but humbly serving them in leadership. He cried among, alongside them, shedding tears with the pain that they experienced as they went through ordinary trials. Their pain was his pain. He experienced the trials and the pain of the plots of the Jews, of people who would rise up, who would try to take over the church, who would distort the church. If you have been a pastor for any length of time, you understand tears and trials. Because they come. The experience of betrayal, of people who you give your life to and turn around and hurt you. Paul experienced all of these things in Ephesus. He said, you know these things, you've seen my life. 
And how, verse 20 says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. Not only on Sunday, but being in your house, constantly teaching you the scriptures. I didn't shrink from anything, teaching you anything that was profitable. And in verse 27, he actually uses this word again. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This word shrink is a very interesting one. It literally means in the Greek to stall. If you've ever flown a plane, you know at a certain point, if you don't keep moving forward, it stalls. He says, I didn't stall, but rather I continued preaching to you the whole counsel of God. That means the good things and the hard things. The things you wanted to hear and the things you needed to hear. I was not afraid not to be unpopular because I know that what you needed more than anything for me was the whole counsel of God. And so I boldly proclaimed it to you because it profited you. It helped you and encouraged you. It strengthened you in maturity. Verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was no favoritism in Paul's ministry. He didn't spend all his time with the shiny, happy, rich people who had it all together. Regardless of their ethnicity or the amount of money in their bank account. He testified the good stuff, the gospel, the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. And so Paul in verse 26 says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. I've been faithful with what God has called me to do here. I have run the race. I've given you my best, Ephesians. That's my example. And here is my future. For behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I must go, Paul says to the Ephesians. God is calling me back. No prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He knows that he's been called. He doesn't exactly know what's going to happen. He ultimately will appeal to Rome and will head to Rome as a prisoner. Ultimately, being decapitated uh, is, as legend occurs, uh, by the emperor. He simply knows that hardship is occurring. And so his passion continues as he gives this last charge to the Ephesians. But I do not account of my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul looks at the ministry that God's given him and he looks at his life and he says that this is my heart's desire. To give to you the gospel. To preach Christ. Remember it was Paul that says, I count everything loss as compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. This message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was ransoming people, not counting people's sins on their record, but rather granting them forgiveness through His blood shed on the cross. This was his passion. 
And this ultimately is what birthed the church of Ephesus. It was his love for Christ that constrained him, that convinced him that one died for all and therefore all died. And that all who died should no longer live for themselves, but for Christ who died for them. He's saying to them, Ephesian elders, remember my love, that I have given away my life, that you might have life. That is the picture of leadership. Reminds me of the story of George S. Rents, a Presbyterian minister who served as a Navy chaplain during both world wars. He was assigned to the USS Houston in 1940. And he served tirelessly during the Battle of the Makassar Strait when the ship was attacked in 1942. It says here that uh, from accounts that as this battle was going on, it says that an officer noted that the crew member at the guns saw this man of God walking fearlessly among them. And as a result, they no longer felt alone. During the attack, the Houston took a direct hit. And the people who survived the wounded jumped into the sea. It was there that Rents, who was wounded, uh, wounded, along with a host of other people on a overcrowded raft, tried to give his life jacket to another wounded person. They wouldn't accept it. He said, young man, you are young and I have lived the major part of my life and I am willing to go. No one would oblige the generous, fearless chaplain. After several attempts of leaving and being brought back by his shipmates, he uplifted them with prayers and songs until ultimately he succeeded in placing his life jacket near a wounded sailor who did not have one. And Commander Rents courageously slipped away into the sea on the morning of March 1, 1942. For his selfless bravery following the loss of the Houston, that night he was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross, the only Navy chaplain to be so honored during World War II. Why are we here, Redeemerites? We're here because we stand on the shoulders of giants, on men like the Apostle Paul. It goes all the way back to those original apostles who went who heard the call, who stayed with people and lived among them, who taught house to house, moment by moment, not shrinking away from declaring the whole counsel of God. And because of those believers that were the fruit of their ministry, leaders came along that planted more churches. And so on and so on and so on. An, a long list of men who cared and served and gave. And now it's our turn. And so my first application point I want for you to make is to recognize that the reason that you are here and this church exists is because they came for you. That it's a privilege and an honor to come into a place like this. Because this church is founded on love. It's the foundation of this church. From Jesus to the apostles to the elders and so on and so on. Recognize that the more than, this is more than simply a gathering of people that come together to hear some doctrine. Recognize and receive that the church is God's gift to you. Just to come into the doors 
is to be loved by innumerable folks who have laid down their life. Recognize the church for what it is. Receive the gift of God's love through it. And respond to the message of the church. Ponder this gospel that has moved people in such a way that they would leave the comforts of home, the securities of life. Ponder the message that has been given, is being given to you today. Personalize it. Why is this message being given to you? Because the Holy Spirit has deemed it profitable to you. We stand on the shoulder of giants. We have the example of Paul's ministry. And now we must hear the charge for ministry that he gives to these elders. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Paul tells these elders... Remember my example? Now here is the charge. He tells them, first of all, who they are. Your elders, which means presbyters. In the Greek, which means old. Not in the sense of age, but rather in the sense of maturity. There's a maturity to you, elders. So be overseers. You have an authority because you have this maturity... You've been given authority, so pay careful attention. That word pay careful attention in the Greek is poemen, or pastor, shepherd. You who are mature, you who have been given authority, exercise responsibility with the task that has been given to you. Well, we must ask the question, who gave them this authority? We remember the folks who are going to be elected that we did have a vote, didn't we? In the chapel, it was unanimous. But Paul shows that this is not a human giving of power. Rather, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, this is the way Paul, God works in church government, that it is God-appointed It is elder-recognized and it is people-affirmed. It will be elder-recognized on Thursday when other churches extend the right hand of fellowship to us. The men who have been chosen, including myself, have been affirmed. But make no mistake, it is God-appointed, elder-recognized, and people-affirmed. An important thing to understand about the church is the church is a supernatural government. First of all, the church is not a democracy. What is a democracy? Government by the people is the definition. A form of government in which the supreme power is vested in the people and exercised directly by them or by their elected agents under a free electoral system. This is not the church. In other words, you can't vote us in and when we tell you what you don't like to hear, you vote us out. It was Winston Churchill that said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. It's the truth. The problem with democracy is the problem with all the other governments. We're all sinners. We need a supernatural form of government. The church is not a democracy. 
But neither is the church an autocracy. Once again, Webster says, government in which one person has uncontrolled or unlimited authority over others. The government or power of an absolute monarch. Whenever we speak of the leader of this church, Jesus Christ, we speak in singularity. But whenever we speak in terms of elders, we speak in terms of plurality. There is a plurality of elders who have been God-appointed, elder-recognized, and people-affirmed that are inter-accountable to other churches. First of all, in our presbytery, the 13 other churches in our Tidewater, and ultimately, the 2,000 other in our denomination. We are people under authority. The church is not an autocracy, and the church is not a dictatorship. A dictatorship is a cult of personality. Not only force, but the power and the, the magnitude of the force of the person. It's not a popularity contest in which we're able to control power by having control of the microphone. No, this is a supernatural institution. Frail as it is that God is in control of. And so Paul is saying to the elders... Pay attention. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers because God has appointed you. The fact that I'm speaking to you is that elders have recognized you and the people have affirmed. And so he gives the charge to pay careful attention to yourselves. Why is that the first charge? Because the reality is you cannot lead from behind. There's a great book out, Margaret Feinberg. It's called Scouting the Divine. And it's where she goes to spend time with different uh, people to learn about spiritual truths. She goes to spend time with a Christian shepherdess. Her name is Lynn. And she keeps a flock of sheep. And Lynn teaches Margaret that shepherding teaches you how to lead from the front rather than the back. Whenever sheep are pushed, They'll respond in fear or anxiety, even when as their shepherd I do it. Pushing a sheep produces agitation. But when I go ahead of the flock and call them by name, they follow me peacefully. They trust me and they want to follow. Anyone can lead by agitating, but leading in such a way that those from behind want to follow is an art form. The reality, my friends, is that our ministry is inseparable from our person. Paul demonstrated the life of the Ephesian church from his life. Do you think there would have been the passion in Ephesus and the desire to follow Christ if it wasn't in Paul in the first place? And so Richard Baxter, the 17th century leader, says, Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine." Unless you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin. Lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderer of the success of your own labors. How many churches do we know where the leader has fallen from grace? Keep watch over yourselves. Pay careful attention, not only to yourself, but to all the flock 
to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Each one of the sheep in this congregation, if you are a Christian, is a blood-bought sheep. You are worth the blood price of Jesus Christ. And you are invaluable. Lynn the shepherdess says something. She says, you, there is a misnomer out there that sheep are dumb. Sheep are not dumb. Sheep are defenseless. And because sheep are defenseless, sometimes they act in ways that are perceived as dumb. Because they have no weapons. The sheep that she watches over, if they are not uh, shorn at a certain time, their coats will become bigger and bigger. And ultimately, they will literally fall over and they will not be able to get back up. They require care. Sheep, because they are defenseless, are extremely trusting. That's why sheep will sometimes lead you know, each other right over a cliff. It's not because they're dumb, it's simply because they've put their ultimate trust in the other sheep because they don't have anyone else to trust. Well, what happens if there is not a shepherd to help guide them? Because sheep are not the most fleet of foot. Another one of their issues. See, the reason Jesus has put shepherds in the church is because you and I need one. How many people do we know who have wandered off wanting to worship God in their own way? To take church membership and attendance casually. And ultimately we look around and where are they? Lost from the faith. It is time for Barry and Ken and I to take our turn. The ministry and position of elder is indispensable. But Barry and Ken and I are very disposable. Because God's, this is God's institution. And so we take our turn. And Paul says to be faithful. Day and night. In tears and trials. House to house. To help shepherd you to maturity. But you see the point my friends. Is to help you grow in faith. We have our responsibility in our job. And so do you. My job is to challenge you, to encourage you. But what happens if you never listen to us? What happens if you only hear the things that sound popular and sift them back and forth? Pastor, that was a pretty good sermon today. Sort of raising the ten or the six by the Russian judge. Evaluating how good the sermon was, never internalizing it to ask the question, what is God saying to me? Well, you're just men. Ordinary, frail, fragile people. Yes, but God has chosen us. And the miracle of the gospel is that God uses frail, failing things to accomplish His purposes. So are you willing to be shepherded? For we have stood up and said we're willing to shepherd God has given faithful men. So pray for us. Listen to us. Allow us into your life. Allow us to come alongside. I hope our lives and our examples. You know what I appreciate about Barry and Ken is they are faithful men. 
Whatever you say about them, you cannot say that they have not been faithful to this church. Serving it day in and day out. This brings me to my final point. Watchfulness. Loving kindness, faithfulness, and watchfulness. Notice in verse 29, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There will arise challenges from the church. The wolf most often comes from within the flock. What are they doing? Speaking twisted things. The word twisted means to distort or to pervert or to, to divert, to draw away disciples from the pure message of Jesus Christ. They will come. And it's our responsibility to be watching for them. See, this is the way Satan works. I have two apples. One of them is real and one of them is fake. They look the same, don't they? We're going to take a little test. How many of you think this one is fake? Raise your hand. How many of you... We have one. How many of you think this one is fake? Raise your hand. You don't want to know the answer? They're both real. See, Satan doesn't play the game the way we do. He's a liar from the beginning. Where you got taken was believing that one of them was real and one of them was fake. Now granted, I'm not Satan. At least I sure hope I'm not. But the point being, there's a reason that God has given us shepherds. It's going to come. There are pressures within the church right now. Let me tell you some of the things and the pressures that are coming in the church that are threatening to take us from our message. Number one, casual Christianity. You can hear this message of grace and it does not translate into carrying your cross and following Jesus. It's a cheap grace. A grace that demands no discipleship. A grace that says, let us continue to live the same way as everybody else. It pushes amongst us. And I must speak against that. Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Forever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Cheap grace. Another, live by the kingdom of the world rather than the kingdom of God. We are called to live differently, to have different priorities, to see people in a different way. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this. My time is up. But the point I want to make is that watchfulness is a key element of the job that we have been given. But we can't do it alone. We must all be equally watchful. For we are in this together and we will either hang together or hang apart, as Benjamin Franklin said. How do I sum up all of these things? Simply this. The church was birthed in love. Jesus Christ, who breathed life into it. And through the apostles, who gave life to these churches. And appointed elders, who appointed elders, who appointed elders, 
who appointed elders. And here we are today. Barry and Ken and I, as best as we know, are here to give our lives to you, that you might have life. So hear the message of the gospel. Heed it. And ultimately live by the example of giving your life away. You may never be an elder in this church. You may never be an elder at all. But the message is always the same. Give away your life that someone else might have life. For as you give away your life, you will find life in Him. Not only in this life, but in death, in the resurrection, afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message of Paul. We thank you for the charge that he has given to the leaders of this church. By your grace, help us to wear the mantle uh, that you wore and that Paul wore. And Lord, help the people to hear the gospel of God's grace in its fullness and to respond wholeheartedly that we may be a people utterly given over to you. We love you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.